24th started off as a joyful day and it was quickly overshadowed by the tragic events that followed that day. That's Caitlin Gonzalez. Here, she's just 10 years old, speaking at a gun safety rally in Uvalde, Texas, just up the road from Robb Elementary School, her elementary school. On May 24th, an 18-year-old walked into her school with an AR-15 and killed two teachers and 19 of her classmates, including her best friend. A school is a place where a teacher and child should feel safe, but it isn't. I should feel safe. My friends should feel safe, but we don't. Since Uvalde, there have been hundreds of mass shootings. And according to the Post's school shooting database, more than a dozen shootings or acts of gun violence have happened in schools since May. After a school shooting, we often talk about how many kids were killed, how many were injured. But there are also kids left behind who are physically fine, but traumatized. Kids like Caitlin. For her... She responded to this trauma by becoming an advocate. She is different, really, than anyone I've ever met before, in part because she was so determined to keep the memory of her friends alive, to share her own trauma. She wanted something to come out of this uh, that was meaningful, and that's rare for a 10-year-old. She really understood and educated herself on kind of the wider world of school shootings and gun violence and was very intentional and thoughtful in the way that she fought for change. John Woodrow Cox reports on gun violence in America, and he spent months with Caitlin and Uvalde this summer. Caitlin has become a powerful and very public advocate for gun safety. She travels the country and even went to the U.S. Capitol to speak about the experience of surviving a school shooting. But John also saw the more complicated side of her recovery, how she's haunted by the time she spent, waiting for someone to stop the shooter and having to listen to her friends and classmates die. There's sort of two sides to her, that there's this public side that people think is her all the time. She's this really confident kid who writes these incredible speeches, delivers them with confidence, and, you know, demands change. She's angry, and she wants police held accountable for, in her mind, abandoning her friends and letting them die and letting her sit there for all that time listening to them die. And she really has become this, you know, portrait of resilience in people's mind and this sort of proof that... You can recover from something like this, that a kid can get better. But that's not who she is behind closed doors. That's not who she is at night. She's a kid suddenly dealing with enormous amounts of anger uh, that she can't predict and can't control. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Friday, December 9th. Today... Almost a decade after the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School, we have the story of Caitlin Gonzalez, a 10-year-old girl who survived a school shooting this year. 
John takes us behind the scenes of her public advocacy. And we learn how Caitlin is dealing with losing some of the people she loved the most. John, can you tell me a little bit more about Caitlin, this 10-year-old girl? What was she like before the shooting? And in the aftermath, what has her evolution been like that, Mm -hmm. that you've seen? So her gift has always been friendship. She is a kid who thinks that she can make a friend out of anyone. Even in her own class, she was really mindful of other kids who were having bad days. So she would never tell on kids, but what she would do is she'd go to her teacher and say, this kid's having a bad day or this kid's upset. She would write them uh, encouraging notes, just trying to make them feel better. And this was, you know, something she was doing since she was six, seven, eight years old. Wow. Yeah, I wish we all had little Caitlins in all of our schools, Truly, right? Yeah. And she took that very seriously. So she set her alarm for 5.05 every morning because she wanted to be the first kid at school so that she could get all the free breakfast for her classmates and so she could make her teacher coffee. She would do that every morning. She knew exactly how her teacher, uh, Miss Salas, took her coffee. And then when her teacher would get there, she would go stand in the hallway with her and welcome the other children as they arrived at school. So she viewed her role as a helper. That's what she called herself. She took that very seriously. So, you know, thinking about her as always having been a helper, that that's how she's always perceived herself. And this happens, this traumatic thing happens, and that helper instinct kicks in. How did that end up in this sort of advocacy and public speaking role? It really uh, stemmed initially from wanting to do something on behalf of her best, best friend, because she will describe a lot of friends as her best friends, but her best, best friend was Jackie. And they had known each other since pre-K. They first met on a playground when Caitlin walked up to her and said, "Do do you want to play together? And they went and sat on the swings. And since then, they had just become closer and closer. They played munchkins together in, uh, the Wizard of Oz, and they both listened to the same music, Olivia Rodrigo and Bad Bunny, and shared, you know, stories about boys they had crushes on and... Uh, girl, girl, like little girl things yeah, that they do together. exactly, yeah. right. And had, you know, FaceTimed each other all the time. Jackie was nine years old, and, and they had never... It always frustrated them because they'd never been in the same class together. They'd always... They were fourth graders, but they always had different teachers, so they'd be in different rooms. And they had hoped... You know, when they went to Flores, which uh, started in fifth grade, that's where they were going to go, they had hoped that maybe that would change then. And they'd really started imagining their life together already, that, they, that maybe they were going to get lockers together. And they were going to get to walk to class without adults, you know, escorting them. And they were going to practice cheerleading together because it felt like oh, we're, we're almost going to be teenagers. So they had really envisioned a future. And they were going to uh, try out together for the new play, Beauty and the Beast. And then... You know, the shooting happens, and, and she actually, she knew Jackie so well and had sort of shared enough scary stories with her that um, she she heard Jackie scream. Oh, my God. Yeah, she could recognize Jackie scream uh, across the hallway. And, uh, you know, she, she just knew it. And, yeah, I mean, there's, there's few things that I've ever heard a child share— uh, that was more um, difficult than that. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and she's 10. Right. Right. So it was really, it was for Jackie. It was for her love for Jackie that inspired her the first time to get up on a lectern. And it was after um, Jackie's parents had asked her if she wanted to speak. Because they knew her well enough to know that she probably would, Mm. that she was a kid who was brave and had a lot to say and was looking for ways to help. So, you know, she gets up in front of a bunch of cameras for the first time. This was a a rally in Uvalde in July. So, uh, you know, hundreds of people, including Caitlin, you know, marched a mile from Rob to kind of the town square and... You know, she sat there for an hour and listened to family after family after family get up and talk about what they'd lost and demand uh, gun safety reform. And, you know, when it was nearly her turn, she took out her little notebook and just started rereading her speech again. And then uh, there was this amazing moment where Jackie's family had asked her if she wanted her dad to step up onto the stage with her. And she said no. She wanted to do it on her own. And I think some of that came from the fact that she'd lost so much. So much of who she was had been stripped away. She couldn't sleep alone. She couldn't do so many things by herself. She couldn't be away from her mom for more than a few minutes. But this was something she wanted to do on her own. I was asked to speak today by Gloria Chapman's mom. Jackie, as she was known by many, one of my best friends. Jackie was a bubbly and kind girl who loved making friends. Unfortunately, she was killed along with 18 of our classmates and two of our Rob's finest teachers. Rob Elementary should have been saved that day and every day, but it wasn't. A day and just gives a, an incredible speech about... Uh, the loss and about accountability and about what she had lived through that day and that she was she was never going to hug her best friend again. I last hugged two of my closest friends that morning at the award ceremony, Eliana Torres and Jacqueline Cáceres. I am grateful that I am here in front of you today. I just wish my friends would be here today. I can't imagine the pain my friends and teachers feel in their last moments. It felt to her like a way for her to make a difference, to be a helper in a bigger way. Jackie and the rest of the classmates and teachers died because law enforcement did not protect us like they should have. I am so mad. So many lives could have been saved. I'm here today to be their voice since we can no longer hear their voice. I'm here today to find justice for all Uvalde's 21. Thank you for your time. May they all rest And I'm imagining that elected officials have also taken notice of her, right? Yeah. Especially since there are so many politicians who are out there speaking about gun violence and gun control. Yeah. So uh, she's gotten to meet Beto O'Rourke, former presidential candidate. He knows her well as has you know, posted him on her Instagram. Uh, she also met uh, several lawmakers in Washington, including Senator Amy Klobuchar, uh, another former candidate for the presidency. And she was incredibly moved by Caitlin. It was actually the first time that I had ever seen Caitlin break down in a public setting. She was reading her speech again from a, a rally in Uvalde. And when she got to the moment 
where she was talking about not being able to hug her best friend again, Jackie. She just, uh, she just lost it. Never in a million years would I think this would happen at my school. I lost some of my best friend due to gun violence. I will never get to hug my best friend ever again. <laughs> Well, I think you really, thank you for sharing it. And, you know, and then later really insisted on the senator seeing all the photos. She brought all these photos of all of her dead friends with her, and she had buttons all over, and she took her through each one. These are her friends she lost. Um, Can I see the buttons? Let me see. Wow. Oh, okay. So that, who is she? She's McKenna? McKenna. Mm-hmm. And Olivia, I mean, she's like little league, it looks like. Thank you. And Olivia. <laughs> and were these girls you went to school with for a long time? Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, look at that. I'm so glad you're with us. And that you're not letting your friends be forgotten. Not only by having their pictures, but by being willing to try to get a change to the law so it doesn't happen to other kids. After the break, the trauma that Caitlin and her family are dealing with behind closed doors. We'll be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. And so, John... You know, this is the view that the public is getting right. of, of Caitlin. Can you tell us how much time you were able to spend with Caitlin and her family in their home in Uvalde, Texas, after the shooting? And what was that time like? I've really never had an experience like this. I spent, you know, all summer reporting on this one particularly memorable day. It was the day that she was going to meet her new fifth grade teachers for the first time. And uh, about an hour before that, she was just sitting on her couch, and she told me about this before, but I'd never actually seen it happen. She just starts looking up YouTube videos of other school shooting survivors sharing their experiences. And, And it was remarkable because she had already seen all these videos and memorized who the kids were. She knew their names and what they had seen. So she just starts narrating one video after another. This is the new time thing. Yeah. He's a new time shooter, right? Mm-hmm. Those two were in her class. Kids from Parkland and Sandy Hook and all these different shootings, and she already knew all of it. He's now in a wheelchair. I think I was five, obviously. How do you know that? Because I saw his thing. Put me in a stretcher. She is a cheerleader. I just sat next to her and watched it, and it was just uh, 
you know, it was an incredible thing and an, an incredibly depressing thing. And I thought it was such an indictment of who we've become as a country that uh, 10-year-olds feel burdened after they've been through their own school shootings to then study others so mm. that they can speak with authority. Like before she starts school, she's looking at all of these videos. She's memorized what they have to say because there's now a community of exactly. children and then she's now part of this community right. and is turning to them and their voices for support in this moment. Right, right. That's, that's who those kids, she thinks, well, they can relate to me. And they're, they're on a shared journey because they're sharing, you know, what they went through and they're trying to fight for change. And now I'm one of them. You know, I'm part of this, this fraternity you know, and this is an hour before she's going to go to Flores and meet her her new teachers. So I, I witnessed that moment. And then I go with her um, to meet the teacher day. And she meets her teacher, and she's, you know, trying to avoid this little boy she who had a crush on her. And she there she sees this police officer in the hallway and veered to the other side and really kind of glared at him um, because, because of her anger toward the police. Right. She really holds them responsible for... Um, several of her friends being dead because they left those kids in that room for 77 minutes. Um, so then, you know, I see her fill out the little about me and and then, uh, you know, it was kind of an unremarkable thing. And then we get back in the car and she looks at her mom and says, can we go to the cemetery? Um, which she had been by then. I'd been with her two or three times by then to the cemetery. It was a thing that she does every week. Um, because that is where she feels closest to the friends that she's lost. So then we, you know, ride out to the cemetery and take this sort of tour, grave by grave. Our friend, they put pictures of all of them. Oh, that's great. That's, that's cool. Let's yeah. go to Jackie's. She's just sharing memory after memory after memory of each of these kids. They put Jack, Jason's shoes in the thing, and I think. The what? Look at they put Adam thing in a case. Look at right there, Adam shoes. Um, and fixing their graves, and you know, picking up signs that have fallen over, and brushing off dolls. Mom, look at they need to cut her grass. Huh? They need to cut her grass. Oh. They've just been so busy. Right? So busy, yeah. Look, if you look right forward, John, you see McKenna's. Okay. Yeah, hers is down, beyond the tree, right? It's just the one in the middle there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that was a beautiful spot to put it. Yeah. Beautiful. In that moment, she sounds remarkably composed. And this is often the version of her that the public sees, that the outside world sees. This kid who is mature beyond her age, who can talk uh, almost matter-of-factly about children who were um, killed across the hallway from her. I mean, McKenna gave her a, a chocolate donut a few hours before she was killed, and now here she is describing how beautiful her gravesite is. Uh, but that is not entirely who she is. And, you know, I spent uh, a lot of time with her uh, over months and got to see that other version. And that most often emerged at night when it was time to go to sleep. 
And hearing her in those moments, she sounded like an entirely different kid. You know, this, beyond what it's done to Caitlin, this has put uh, an incredible strain on her family, her whole family. Her sister feels a great deal of resentment because suddenly almost all of her mom's attention is going to Caitlin. Um, and two, you know, her parents, their marriage has been blown up by this. They, they don't go on dates anymore. They almost never spend time together alone without Caitlin present because she is afraid, especially at night, of being alone. And, and so in the, in the weeks leading up to her returning to school, knowing that she was going to have to spend eight or ten hours a day without her mother, uh, they, in sort of small doses, tried to just leave her alone in the, her room for a little while and maybe watch a TV show or eat a meal or just spend some time together. And Caitlin really struggled with that. Even the idea of being alone for just a couple of minutes, especially at night, was uh, overwhelming for her. And I got to witness that uh, more than once, those um, meltdowns. And then once her mom wanted to capture it herself. And so in the middle of one of these meltdowns that Caitlin was having, uh, she just turned the recorder on her phone. Caitlin, go lay down. I'll catch up with you. No. Caitlin, that's enough. I'm not going. You have to go lay down. I'm not going. Mama's going to have dinner. No. That's the reality of her life. Her life is, is never going to be what it was because of that day. Is she seeing anyone for counseling and therapy and what support exists with that? And are there other things that her family is trying to do to help her process this? So I see this over and over in the aftermath of these school shootings, where there's suddenly there's all these sort of promises of mental health care and support and, you know, you'll never have to pay for it. But what that looks like for her is she sees a therapist basically every other week for about 15 minutes. So she gets about 30 minutes of actual therapy a month. So, you know, the county, the state, all those folks can say she's getting therapy. 30 minutes a month. Yeah, 30 minutes a month is really what it equates to. And, you know, to the people there, their view of it, you know, th this is not this is not really what happened after Sandy Hook, right, which is the most comparable okay. school shooting. There, the supports there were different. And the people in Uvalde certainly feel like the difference is, well, those people were wealthy and white, and we're not, and we're brown. And uh, a lot of people attribute what they view as the lack of support as an outgrowth of racism. Certainly, millions of dollars have been donated to the families. People all over the country uh, certainly cared deeply and stepped up in, in meaningful ways. But then there's also become this debate over, well, who, who should get that money? Mm. And uh, some of the families who lost children don't feel that the families who'd still get to kiss their kids goodnight, that they should get any money. Mm. But th the reality is it's going to cost them tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of their kids' lives to get the treatment that they need. And then what about school policies? Have they changed anything or put into place any rules in order for these students to feel safe again? So the school district did 
install fences. It took a long time. And in fact, in Caitlin's school, the fence wasn't there on our first day of school, which was a point of real um, concern for her and enormous anxiety because, you know, they had this old chain link fence in the, around the playground behind the school. And on the first day, it actually, there was no fence at all. And then in the days after that, they finally installed the fencing. And, you know, again, that was to them, it was a sign like, you know, they had three months to just put a fence up. And this is where all the kids who were most deeply traumatized were going to school. To this one school, right. Flores. Right. So the, all, there were fl- all the fourth graders were the ones who were most deeply affected um, at Rob. So they were the kids who were either in those classrooms being shot, witnessing the shooting, being killed, or they were in classrooms in close proximity like, like Caitlin's. And, you know, a bullet went through her classroom wall. So a lot of kids left the school district entirely. They went to a private Catholic school or they went to another school district, but most of them ended up at Flores. And for whatever reason, they were not ready, you know, when when the kids showed up. So, you know, there was a feeling, certainly in that community, um, and this was true for survivors and people who were killed, that the district was not doing what they should be to make people feel safe. Well, I'm curious how that first day back at school went for Caitlin and how it's gone since then. What was that day like? And then how did it did it change at all for her? Yeah, so she woke up that morning around four. <laughs> and, um, you know, she's a kid who's always loved the first day of school. Always, right? Always. She loves school. It is a place that she loves because that's the place where she makes friends. And she's great at school. She's always on the honor roll. So she, in the days leading up to it, there was this internal tension about, like, the kid she's always been and the kid who suddenly was just riddled with anxiety. And so she woke up, I think, with a mixture of feelings, and none of us knew if she was actually going to be able to get out of the car and go into the school. I had no idea. She didn't know. Her mom didn't know. But, you know, she woke up really early, and then, you know, she was getting antsy at home, and and we leave, and, you know, they take the first day pictures in the dark because it was still, the sun hadn't come up yet. So then we we get kind of in proximity to the school, and it was really early. The school didn't open till 7, and we were probably there about 6. And, uh, you know, there was this, we're just sort of waiting, and there was this moment where her mom takes out her phone, And she's going through Facebook, and she's seeing that the parents of all the victims are posting photos, first day of school photos of their kids. Because it was the first day of school, and they're not sending their kids back, right? Their kids are gone. and Those children who had died. Right, the kids who had died. And and Caitlin says, well, let me see. Let me see. I want to see. So she takes her mom's phone, and on one photo, she zooms in, and she just starts counting faces. Okay, John. Hmm. Six, seven, eight, oh no, eight, eight people in this photo that passed away. Mm. Who posted that one? And then she just hands the phone back to her mom, right? And because that's what life is now, right? It was just the matter of factness of it. So then finally, you know, we get up closer and then she realizes that she's the first one there. Uh, and the anxiety like, really spiked. Like she yeah. had before the shooting in her life before right. was the first one there yes. because she wanted to go early to help. Right. right. But now she's the first one there and it, it feels very different. Very different, right. And uh, she was looking the whole time she's looking for anybody I know. Is there someone? Because she wanted to go in with someone. She was, she'd sort of been trying to arrange this for days. She was texting her other friends saying, oh, get there early, get there early, we'll walk in together. And she's realizing that that's not going to happen. That I'm gonna, If I'm going to go, I have to walk in by myself. 
um, as she's getting out of the car and she just, you know, she's got her bow and she marches right in and there's this big, I'll never forget this image, but there's this sign on the side of the door that, with a, uh, a pistol with a red line through it that says, you know, this is a gun-free zone, you know. And uh, she walks right in, doesn't look back. And, you know, then for her mom, it was a morning of just a uh, huge amount of anxiety about how she was doing. And then mid-morning, she texts her mom just to say that she has a friend in that class. Because, you know, going into the school year, she had vowed not to make any new friends. Why? It, there were really two reasons. One was that she couldn't bear the idea of losing anymore. Oh, gosh. Uh, and the other was it felt like a betrayal to the friends that she'd lost. So the fact that there was a friend, she texted her mom that because they were allowed to text their parents during this little window in the morning. So she texted her mom, oh, my friend's here. And her mom says, well, how are you doing? She says, good. And she says, I like my teachers, right? So it was this huge relief for Gladys that because she'd thought, am I doing the wrong thing? Should I have sent her somewhere else? Should we have moved? And then, you know, Gladys is thinking, well, when I pick her up, maybe she'll be like she's always been. She's going to have a million stories to tell and talk about all the new friends she made. And you know, she comes out and she gets in the car and she was just very subdued. And she said, well, you know, what was your favorite part of the day? I don't know. You know, she was glad they didn't give homework. She said there were too many boys. The way she put it is there's too, there's too much boys in my class. <laughs> <laughs> and But had very little to say. She just wasn't sharing, and this was not how she'd ever been after the first days of school. And then she she looks at her mom and says, Send me a therapy appointment this week. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. They made an app that you can set up an appointment with a counselor at the school. And, you know, her mom couldn't really figure it out, what was going on. And, and, you know, we go home, and it just didn't really change. So just because her teachers were nice and there was one extra kid in class and maybe she liked her subjects, it, it was never going to be the way that it should have been. Mm. So since her first day at school, as she's kept going back, have things changed at all for Caitlin? So... Um, you know, I don't know that anything has changed dramatically. She's, she's stuck with it, which was a real question um, in the aftermath because she missed a couple of days of school at one point. But she's kept going. And her teachers and, and her classmates have been very supportive. She's actually been to D.C. one more time to talk to more lawmakers. You know, I don't think that she's really made any new friends still that she would, you know, acknowledge anyway. And... Uh, she has mixed feelings about the increased security. So because she does have such a huge amount of animosity still toward the police, toward law enforcement in general, and there are more law enforcement now, you know, in her building. You know, it's been comforting to her that they're not the same officers who were there that day. So that's, I think, for all the kids and families there, that's given them a measure of, okay, these are different people and let's, you know, let's try to view them as their own. But just in general, she still feels uh, a lot of anger. And she also has zero faith that law enforcement could or would protect her because mm. the time that they had the opportunity to, they didn't. They failed. Right. Miserably. Right. I mean, just um, there's no question. And and she knows, too, that she's not alone. She knows she's not unique. We're up to more than 320,000 children who have been in a school when a school shooting occurred since Columbine, 320,000, that's what we're up to. And 
the vast majority of those are kids like Caitlin who have no physical wounds. They're kids who were just there when it happened. A meaningful number of those kids are dealing with something like what Caitlin did. And John, you've done this kind of reporting many times before, spending this intimate time with families and children who are survivors of mass shootings. Is there something you've learned from bearing witness to their lives and struggles and something that you've learned from bearing witness to Caitlin's story that you think it's important for the rest of us to know? So I think I think the scope of this crisis is so much larger than people are willing to acknowledge. Because it's not just the kids who died. It's not just the kids who got shot. It's not just the kids like Caitlin who listened to the whole thing happen and lost dear friends. It's third graders, it's teachers and their kids, it's cousins, it's people in the community who thought, is my kid dead? That damage cannot be undone. And there are, there are so many people who need help, adults who need help to get through this. And then you multiply that by the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of school shootings that happen. And then you multiply that by the thousands of kids who live through lockdowns. So not lockdown drills, but actual lockdowns, where they think for a minute, there's someone in my school who's here to kill me. That happens every single day in this country. And it's not theoretical, because they're aware of Uvalde in Parkland. They've seen, these kids know that. So when they go into lockdown and they got to go hide in the corner of their room and lock the doors, you know, those kids are texting their parents goodbye and they're writing wills. You know, this is what we're doing, right? So we only think of the crisis in terms of the number dead. And then we make a calculation, well, it's this bad because of how many kids died. That is fallacious. It doesn't, it doesn't begin to capture just how many kids we're damaging permanently because we're just allowing these things to happen over and over and over again. Thank you, John, so much for your reporting and bringing that for us here. Sure. Thank you for having me. John Woodrow Cox is an enterprise reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Sabi Robinson. It was mixed by our engineer, Sean Carter, and edited by our executive producer, Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Ted Muldoon is our senior producer. My co-host is Martine Powers. Lucy Perkins is our editor. The show is also produced by Eliza Dennis, Sharla Freeland, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Emma Talkoff, and Rennie Svernovsky. The Post's director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.